Welcome to That's What She Said, a podcast of sermons at Galileo Christian Church, Disciples of Christ. Galileo exists to seek and shelter spiritual refugees, who for us are people for whom the church has become boring, irrelevant, exclusive, or even painful, especially people who have been pushed out because of their gender or sexuality. If you yourself are a spiritual refugee, we're especially glad you're listening. And if you find this podcast helpful in your theological rehabilitation, consider partnering with us in its production. Become a financial sponsor of That's What She Said on Patreon, a platform for supporting content you love. Thanks! Hey friends, I'm Katie, my pronouns are she, her, I'm getting my chair adjusted here. I'm the lead evangelist here at Galileo Church, and I'm so glad to see all of y'all. I'm so glad to see especially guests who have joined us here tonight because we had protesters announcing that they were coming again this Sunday, and again for the second month in a row, they haven't shown. I don't know, maybe this time the weather is just too nice for protesting? I'm not really sure. Or maybe they finally have gotten bored of us and have just decided to stay home. I'm happy about it either way, and happy for all of you who have joined us here tonight And for people who are online with us, just hoping against hope that tonight would be a really calm and boring Sunday. That's exactly what we got. Thanks be to God. We're happy for it. We're in a worship series in this Advent season that we're calling Home for the Holy Days. And we're thinking about the complexities of home. And in particular for Jesus, what it meant that he didn't have one. He really, you know, if you were looking for a Messiah with a permanent address, he was not your guy And we started out last week by thinking about that old saying, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the son of humanity has nowhere to lay his head. And over the subsequent weeks, we're going to be just exploring the geography of Jesus, starting tonight with Bethlehem, and then moving on through the various places that he inhabited, particularly because his origins are in a historical geography that is right now, at this moment, in the anguish of violence and cruelty and hatred. And so we're trying to get a grip on what it means that Jesus traversed that same geography and will be following over these weeks his own path from one place to another, none of which really were his home. And we'll start tonight in the city of David. In Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration and was taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. All went to their own towns to be registered. Joseph also went from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to the city of David called Bethlehem because he was descended from the house and family of David. He went to be registered with Mary, to whom he was engaged, and who was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for her to deliver her child, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in bands of cloth, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place in the guest room. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. This is what I've been told. My mother and dad went to some friend's house to play 42 that Friday night. 
My mom wasn't sure they should go, but they were bored with waiting, and there was no internet and no streaming and no video games, and what else was there to do? So they joined their friends for that Texas domino game. They ate pecan pie. Mom kept thinking maybe that pie wasn't settling right, and eventually she told my dad that it was time. Dad said, let me just finish this hand. And mom said, no, Joe, we have to go now. Dad waited with my mom's parents in that Abilene labor and delivery waiting room. And I was born on Saturday morning, the Ides of March, 1969. A few days later, mom hemorrhaged enough to have to go back to the hospital. My dad's mother from Roswell had arrived by then and to my mother's displeasure, fed me from a bottle. The plan was to breastfeed, saving the money not spent on formula to buy a washing machine for the cloth diapers that otherwise had to be hauled to the laundromat three or four times a week. When mom felt better and all the grandparents had thankfully gone home, my parents planted a spindly pecan tree in the front yard of their little Abilene rent house to remember my birth. That was our whole world right there, the three of us, and all, or so they have told me, was right with the world. For you, Lydia, my little daughter, a quarter century ago, your dad and I walked and walked and walked the autumn streets of Birmingham, through Five Points, through the university district, walking that baby down, as I had been told to do by my elders. The memories of pregnancies lost before you were safely tucked away, and I was glad to feel so strong in my body and my spirit this time around. We waved at church friends, Emily and Hugh, who happened to pass by on our Friday afternoon walk on October the 9th. They said later they wondered if you would come on time that very weekend, and you did. My water broke in the rocking chair when we got home from our walk, and we spent the night in a softly lit room with our doula, Clary, not a professional, but a capable friend, me rocking and humming, dad rubbing my lower back, the young doctor worrying over your position. There was some pain, some fear, as that clumsy young doctor tried to turn you over. You were head first, but sunny side up, and everyone agreed it would never work. So as the sun came up on Saturday morning, we agreed to a cesarean section. You were not in distress, but the doctor was. And I said to your dad, we came here for a baby, not an experience. And he said, yes. I watched the surgery in the reflection of the metal light fixture above me. It was miraculous. And you were astonishing. They needed to take you for washing and assessing, they said. And I said to your dad, don't let her out of your sight. And he said, okay. And a little while later, he brought you to me. And we all slept off and on through the rest of that day. 
The nurses left us blissfully alone. The hospital disappeared around us. And that was our whole world right there, the three of us. And all, or so I am telling you, was right with the world. For you, little Jesus boy, it happened like this. Everybody said I was too pregnant to travel, that the trip would be too much for me. But Joseph knew if he left me at my parents' home in Nazareth, the neighbors would eat me alive with gossip and glares. He had taken to heart his role as protector. It was sweet. And if the empire said everyone had to report to the census office in their hometown, then by golly, I would come with him. And we would register as a family, even if the official vows in front of a rabbi were still in our future. It was far from the stupidest thing the imperial government has re had required of us over the years. For the Caesar, every new conquest was like acquiring squares on a monopoly board. He moved people around like we were natural resources dug from the conquered earth itself, cogs in a vast machine that produced wealth for its citizens, his army, his ego. So we went, 70 miles or so, Nazareth to Bethlehem, making our way slowly to give me lots of chances to rest my swollen feet and ankles, we were rarely on the road alone, though. The migration for such a census clogged the roads with caravans. And once in a while, we caught rides with friendly strangers. But I slowed us down. Joseph agreed amiably to stop every time I needed to pee. And with your knees mashed against my bladder, it was a lot of stopping. So we got to Bethlehem later than we meant to, like days later. That's where we had to go because Bethlehem had been King David's capital and Joseph had David's lineage. May his memory be a blessing. Oh, well, yes, me too. David and Bathsheba were my great, great something ancestors, but it's not my ancestry that counted for Caesar as my labor would generate nothing taxable for his economy. And Joseph had agreed to count you as his son because that's the kind of man he was. As we were latecomers knocking on Joseph's family of origin's doors, they gave us what space they had left in the clean, sweet straw of a spare stable, the lamplight raising a murmur from the milk cow and the roosting chickens. I told Joseph's aunt that I'd been feeling the contractions for several hours. She said, don't worry, she would bring some broth and some towels, some clean water, and more of the aunties, and all would be well. And it was, little Jesus boy, all was well. The aunties wrapped you in clean cloth and oiled your full head of dark hair, and I would have held you, staring at you, all night long. But Joseph said firmly that I had to get some sleep, and finally I said, yes, it would be all right for a few minutes, and they put you right beside me in a little trough from which they had cleaned the horse's mash, and I slept for about a million hours until your crying pulled me into the sunlight, and I put you to my breast, and right there, 
in the sweetness of that stable, leaning against Joseph, nursing you back to sleep. Everything was perfect. The aunties whispered away. Caesar and Quirinius, even Herod, they didn't even exist for us for a little while. That was our whole world right there, the three of us. And all, or so I am telling you, was right with the world. It is a curious reality of human life that our biographies begin before we are born. Long before we are conscious of ourselves, our world, ourselves in the world. We rely on people who have known us the longest to narrate our origins to us, to give us memories we could not possibly have of ourselves. Our parents are usually the keepers of these memories, whether biological ones, recalling labor, or adoptive ones, keeping hold of those gotcha days on the calendar. It's worth noting that Jesus had one of each of those kinds of parents, his mother's pregnancy and birth story, and Joseph's clear-eyed decision to call him his own, made official by a declaration on Caesar's census. The well-rehearsed stories of our origins are important because in some sense, it feels true that where we came from has some bearing on where we will end up. Not a strictly biological or even sociological destiny, but a narrated one, a story that has a beginning that begins before we begin an existence that belongs in a long line of existences, people who were born before us doing the kinds of things that bring babies into the world, sex or surrogacy or insemination, love if you're lucky, pregnancy and labor, nourishment and shelter, more love if you're even more lucky, each of us is born into a place, into a time when so-and-so is in charge, where such-and-such such is the governor, when the world was as the world was, the planet spinning and hurtling through space, kept in gravitational thrall to the sun in a particular season, on a particular day, at a particular hour. And then you arrive on the scene and for a little while, if you are lucky, you are the center of someone's universe. And all is right with the world. This is what Bethlehem signifies in the biography of Jesus. The part he could not have known unless his mother told it to him, as I assume she did, perhaps annually on his birthday, the way some families share the lore of each kid's arrival when that date rolls around every year. Bethlehem 
meant that Jesus' family was not at the wheel of control on the day of his birth. They were not people of power or privilege who could call in a favor. They lacked agency in their own socioeconomic status. The imperial economy dictated their movement and limited their prospects. They weren't just not rich. They were working poor. They would never own the land they lived on. They would have little other than their learned skills to pass on to the coming generation. Bethlehem meant that Jesus' family took steps to mitigate the scandal of Mary's pregnancy, but could not quite make it disappear. Even if Joseph had Mary's back, bringing her to Bethlehem as if she was his wife already, registering the child as his own, the reality was, to all appearances, she was just a girl in trouble. Joseph would do his best for her. If she said her son was going to be the Messiah they'd all been waiting for, well, who was he to argue? But the neighbors, his family, her family... Everyone else would argue. So for a long time, they simply bore the scandal together. It was easier to carry the shame than to have them scoff at the story she told about how it happened. Bethlehem meant that Jesus' family was at the mercy of an extended family who likely shook their heads over the kids these days and still offered basic hospitality when the situation necessitated because, as they might have said through gritted teeth, family is family. It was not the welcome to the world he deserved, but it was the welcome he got. Mary and Joseph made the best of it, and it was sufficient. As to whether the Bethlehem birth was determinative for Jesus' adulthood, well, Consider the lessons he might have absorbed as Mary rehearsed the story for him when he turned 5, 15, 25. The empire of Rome, he might have noticed, functioned for his family not unlike the empire of Pharaoh for his ancestors. An imperial economy always hungry for more input, more labor, more extracted wealth, a system in which people are expendable, where they don't even deserve health care if they don't produce sufficiently. Surely God's reign, God's empire, would measure the worth of each of its citizens differently from that, numbering not the coins each one released to the tax collector, but rather the hairs on each precious head. Surely in God's empire, the health of each beloved body would matter. And if the shame of pregnancy before marriage plagued his mother, wouldn't he have good reason to ensure that shame found no place in his own way of leading people to the heart of God? Might he have developed a sense of strength in vulnerability? a miraculously non-toxic masculinity from Joseph, a gift for giving people second chances, an ethic of believing people when they tell you their story, a respect for people doing the best they can under less than ideal circumstances. Shame 
would not be a tool in his toolbox, ever. And maybe, too, Jesus would have contemplated what family means, given his natal narrative. It might mean finding the people who will make room for you when there is no room, who will stay by your side through the hardest night of your life so far, who will give what they have, even when what they have, they know, is not quite enough. It's family as less of a guarantee and more of a choice, an ethic of not leaving people alone in a scrape, no matter what you think about the scrape they're in. Who are my mother and my brothers, he would ask a room full of people in his adulthood. You are, if you want to be, if you want to be that for each other, if you decide to have each other's backs when this path we're on gets dicey. It's the season of the church's year when we rehearse again the story of Jesus' birth, again and again and again, in scripture and in song, in the exchange of greeting and gift, like kids asking parents to tell again how we all became a family we want to hear again about the sweet little Jesus boy, the livestock and the feeding trough, the starry night that unfurled while his mother panted and pushed. Because his birth story is originary for us too. His prehistory is ours as well, a story of ourselves and the world and ourselves in the world that began before we began. Bethlehem is not our home any more than it was his, but it is where we're from, if you see what I mean, and what has formed us. Jesus, and all who are lucky enough to be born into his story. It is the empire's boot. It is undeserved and unhelpful shame. It is family in all its complexity. Bethlehem is all those things for all of us. So, happy birthday, Jesus, almost, and happy birthday to us, too, right here, right now, for this moment. Nobody outside this barn even exists. And all, or so I am telling you, is right with the world. Amen. Thanks for listening to That's What She Said. If what you've heard is helpful, consider becoming a patron of its production by joining our subscribers on Patreon. This podcast is preached almost always by our lead evangelist, Reverend Dr. Katie Hayes. Galileo Church has five missional priorities. We do justice for LGBTQ plus people and support the people who love them. We do kindness around mental health and mental illness, and we celebrate neurodiversity. We do beauty for our God who is beautiful. We do real relationship, no bullshit, ever. And we do whatever it takes to share this good news with the world God still loves. To support our missional priorities, go to GalileoChurch.org and click on Share With Us. You'll have options to contribute through Venmo, PayPal, or your bank account. And if you're kind enough to share your contact information with us, we'll continually send you thanks. Peace.